Well, good evening. Before we get started tonight, I uh, did want to say a couple things. Uh, first off, uh, so thankful for the great turnout we had Sunday night, great food. Uh, just glad everybody stuck around, and uh, thanks for all the help for putting up the tables and chairs, too. Uh, that didn't take any time. We truly appreciate that, and uh, just had a wonderful time of fellowship. How many of you, uh, how many of you got full Sunday night? Anybody get full? Anybody a glutton Sunday night? Prayer repentance tonight, gluttony, all right? So, uh, but I do want to uh, talk about homecoming a little bit. Uh, we are really excited about it. Um, of course, uh, homecoming is December the 8th. And uh, we'd love for you to stick around and stay behind. And uh, we're trying to prepare a lot of food for that. And uh, you gotta have you gotta have the Baptist birds. So we're having chicken, and uh, so we hope you'll stick around for that. And it will be fried chicken. We won't have grilled chicken. So if you're a health nut, peel off the skin and eat it anyways. All right. So we hope you'll join us for that. And uh, <clears throat> it's gonna be a lot of good food. Uh, but I'm gonna be starting a series December the first uh, entitled Welcome Home. And uh, so I'm real excited about that, and uh, that'll go on for about three weeks, then we'll get into Christmas. And uh, then Mike had mentioned something uh, that's going to be coming out in the newsletter. Uh, in January, we're going to have our focus uh, for the entire year of 2020 entitled, Who's Your One? That's something the Southern Baptist Convention has actually been pushing last year. Uh, it's a fantastic idea. They've given it different names over the years, each one reach one, different things like that. Uh, but Who's Your One is going to be our emphasis. And the point behind Who's Your One is simply... For every person in here in the church to think of that one person that God is placing on their hearts that they're going to be praying for all year long. They're going to be praying for them, they're going to be talking to them, and they're going to share with them. And who's that one person? So you're getting a heads up about this before January comes. In fact, you're going to get a little bookmark, and uh, you're going to put the person's name that you're going to be praying for. You'll get a prayer guide. Uh, if you pick that up, there'll be a prayer guide for how you can pray for your one. In fact, uh, before we get into January here on a Wednesday night, we're going to be talking about the prayer of salvation and not the typical prayer that you think of, but how to pray for people uh, that are in need of salvation is what we're talking about. And we're going to use that a little bit later on, but the who's your one is just something we're looking forward to. I uh, hope that you're prepared for You go ahead and start thinking about who that one is. And uh, imagine this, if everybody in the church focused on one person this year and prayed for one person this year and shared the gospel with one person this year and led one person to Jesus this year, we'd have to go to two services. Some of y'all are going, I don't like that idea. I don't care if you like it or not. We want to win people to Jesus. I want to pack this place out. Pack it out two, three, four times, whatever it takes, because we need to win all 11 into Jesus, don't we? So, I mean, I, I, the statistic is 47% of Lebanon is not in church. Could be higher, I don't know, but the last statistic I heard was 47%. So that means almost half of Lebanon is lost. That means every church could double its size in a year, and then we'd finally reach Lebanon, right? That's what we need. And this is a fast-growing area, so we got a lot of work to do. But be praying about that. Who's your one? Well, tonight we're going to continue in the prayer of repentance. We're on the second part of it. I know you guys were probably hoping that we were done last week with the prayer of repentance. Uh, but we're on part two. We couldn't get through all of Psalm 51. So we're going to spend a little bit more time. And plus, no pastor likes to have a six-point sermon, so we break it up into two threes. All right, so we're going to talk about the prayer of repentance tonight. Part one, we talked about three parts to it. That was first off was the plea for forgiveness. Then we had the confession of sin, and then we had the plea for cleansing. Well, tonight we're going to focus on three more fundamentals that deal with the prayer of repentance. We're going to begin in verse 13 and talk about praise 
for forgiveness. Look at me at verse 13. It says, Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. He begins in verse 13 by saying, Then will I teach transgressors. It's important for us to understand that forgiveness has to be learned long before it is taught. In other words, we have to understand the forgiveness that is given to us. And I think about a story that Jesus himself told in the book of, in the gospel of Luke chapter 7. If you want to look there, you can, but Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 40, and it goes like this. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have something to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. You think about that. When you look at your life, when you look at who you once were, when you look at what God has delivered you from, if you recognize the totality of your sin, you recognize how awful you are, and you recognize the forgiveness that God has given to you, and it causes you to want to share it with others about the forgiveness of God. When you understand all that God has done in your life. Now, here's the thing. What he's talking about there is there was a guy by the name of Simon that had invited Jesus to come and eat dinner with him that night. Jesus came in. Well, all of a sudden, this woman of the night, she comes in, and she goes over to Jesus, and she cries over his feet, and she wipes them with her hair, and she kisses his feet, and she anoints his feet, and she goes through all of these stages, and Simon is sitting back going, if he knew who she was, he wouldn't allow it. What's he doing? So Jesus tells this story. He wants Simon to understand something. He wants Simon to understand she recognizes her guiltiness. She recognizes how sinful she is. She recognizes how much she needs to be forgiven. On the other hand, you recognize none of those things. You see, people that think that they're not guilty or people that think that they don't need to repent or people that think that they don't need forgiveness don't recognize how important forgiveness is. And oftentimes they will cast stones at those who recognize their need for forgiveness. Now, I don't know about you. I know I need to be forgiven. I know I need to repent. I know I need to cry out to God. I have no problem. And that's the reason why I don't mind teaching about the forgiveness of God is because I understand it all too well. You see, Paul understood the forgiveness of God as well. In the book of 2 Corinthians, he teaches probably the most prominent passage of Scripture on genuine repentance found in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 9, when he says this, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow turned to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold, this selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in ye. What clearing of yourselves, ye. What indignation, ye. What fear, ye. What vehement desire, ye. What zeal, ye. What revenge. In all things, ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. 
What you have to understand is that being sorry and repent are two different things. you got to recognize that. And what I mean by that is we have taught our kids a terrible lesson. You all ready for this? We have taught our children that sorry is a magic word that fixes everything. If you have ever told your child, you go apologize. How many of you have ever made your kids apologize? Right? We've made our kids apologize. Y'all say, well, Brother John, that's just the right thing to do. We live in the South and we apologize whether we mean it or not. Isn't that the problem, whether we mean it or not? And we teach our kids that, right? You go say you're sorry. Your, your child slaps your other kid. You go tell them you're sorry. And they're like, sorry, I'll see you again next week. You know? Are they really sorry? And that, that's the problem. We, we have taught that sorry is the same as repentance, and it's not. Sorry is just a word. And the bad thing is it's become a magic word. And as our kids learn that, the problem is they learn that in their relationship with God so that when they sin against God, they just look up at God and go, sorry, and then they go on. That's not repentance. Repentance is not just looking at God and saying, I'm sorry. It is seriously getting serious with your sin and recognizing your sinfulness and saying, God, I am sorry. I am broken over my sin. I know my sin affects me and you, and I want to get things right. I want to make things personal. I want to reveal and trust and believe that when I speak this truth, when I share with you what's on my heart, that you will forgive me. But oftentimes we try to hide it from God. The prayer of repentance says no. Prayer of repentance comes from godly sorrow, from brokenness. But in verse 14, he says, deliver me from blood guiltiness. Now, of course, David is referring not to the sin with Bathsheba, but to the sin with Uriah. He was the cause of his death. You realize in causing Uriah's death, David deserved the death penalty. David deserved to lose his own life. In fact, all the way back in Genesis 9, 6, the Bible tells us that God calls for blood for blood. In other words, you kill a man, your life should be taken. Isn't that interesting? All the way back in the book of Genesis, God started that before the law was ever introduced in Exodus. God called for that. Blood for blood. Why? Because he thinks that murder is a serious sin. A serious sin. David had committed it. But here's the thing. When David says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, he doesn't try to undersell his sin. In other words, he called a spade a spade. You understand that? How many of you have sat there with God and you've tried to mumble over words? Well, Lord, I I pray you'll forgive me. Um, I had a bad thought. And um, I didn't mean to, Lord. What do you mean I didn't mean to? A lot of times we say we didn't mean to, but let's just be honest. Let's be truthful with God. God knows the intentions of our heart, right? God knows what we're thinking. God knows who we are. God knows every purpose of our lives. And therefore, David said, look, I'm guilty. Blood guiltiness. In other words, I deserve death. He was willing to recognize it, call it out to God. And he wasn't expecting God to just turn from him. He was understanding that forgiveness had been brought to him. O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. 
You ever just rejoice that God has forgiven you? I mean, honestly, think about that. If you ever rejoice that God has forgiven you, I'm going to tell you, I think a lot of us, an illustration might help us out a little bit. How many of you ever went out and played in the rain? Anybody ever go out and play in the rain? All right. Me and my brothers, we go out and we play football in the rain. And we would come back and we would be caked with mud. I mean, just dripping mud. Open that back door. Before we took a step in, our mom was going, don't you even think about it. You get cleaned up. We're like, the shower's upstairs. I mean, we got mud just dripping. She's going, I know the shower's upstairs, but there's a hose out back. Right? And that's the, here's the thing. We come into God and we think that we're just going to enter into heaven caked in our sin. And that God's going to be okay with it. And God is saying, here's the truth of the matter. You need to make sure that you're repenting, you're cleaning yourself up based on repentance, not on trying to do good works, but repenting and making your life right with God so that you get the mud off before you try to enter into the gates of heaven. You see, if we think we don't have any sin, we're liars, the Bible says. David just admitted it. He praised God. He sang praises. He rejoiced over his forgiveness. We need to praise God when we're forgiven. We need to thank him for what he did for us. Number two, we see brokenness for sin. Look at verse 16. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else I'd give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. You desirest not sacrifice. Ritual with genuine sacrifice is useless. Can I tell you something? You can come to church every time the doors are open. But if your heart isn't broken over your sin, you'll still go to hell. You can go through all the rituals. I don't care if, how many candles you light. I don't care how many Hail Marys you say. I don't care how many prayers you lift up to God. If you aren't broken over your sin and you are not having a broken and humble and contrite heart, you will go to hell. That's just the facts of the matter. No matter how many rituals you do, I don't care if you come up and kneel down at the altar. I don't care if you've been baptized a hundred times. If your heart is not right with God, you will still go to hell. David understood this. He said, thou don't desire sacrifice. Could Could you imagine if we still had to sacrifice today? Can I just tell you what I believe would be happening today? We'd be sacrificing mosquitoes because we'd done killed all the sheep and rams and lambs and bulls. They'd all be dead. There would be no meat eaters in here. We'd all be vegetarians because we'd have done killed them all in sacrifices. And we'd be sacrificing mosquitoes, which I'd be just fine with that. But you see, God knew long ago that there would be a problem because of a sin nature of us. That we'd have to keep bringing sacrifice upon sacrifice upon sacrifice upon sacrifice until finally the perfect lamb of God came and paid for our sins so that no more lambs, no more bulls, no more goats, no more rams, no more anything had to be sacrificed because the one perfect sacrifice had been made for us. He said, you don't desire in sacrifices. In other words, do you think God desires us to kill animals to appease our sin? No. 
No, it wasn't like God looked forward to the people making a sacrifice every morning for him. Every time they sinned, making another sacrifice. Every time they fell short, make another sacrifice. Every time they had a festival, make another sacrifice. God says, I'm sick of it. If you don't believe me, you flip over to Isaiah 1, and he so much as says so. Isaiah 1, beginning in verse 11, he says, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When you come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of the assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. But here's what he says. Wash you. Make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings. From before mine eyes, cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. God says, I'm sick of your sacrifices. Can I tell you something? You could donate a million dollars to the church, but if your heart isn't right, God is not going to care. God is tired of all these vain sacrifices. You know what God desires above sacrifice? He told he told Saul this when Saul brought back the sheep. And he says, oh, well, I was going to make a sacrifice for you. And Samuel says, what is this bleeding of sheep I hear? Oh, this is a sacrifice for the Lord. He goes, I prefer obedience over sacrifice. God would rather our hearts be right with him. That is his desire. But look at verse 17. Here comes the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. The most valuable lesson you could ever learn as a Christian is brokenness. Now, let me preface it with this. It is not a lesson anybody really wants to learn. Brokenness means you will come to a point where you have no strength on your own. Brokenness means that there is a situation that you've been put in that it just keeps beating you down. It just keeps tearing you apart. And every time you want to cry out, why to God, you know you can't. Because you understand that God has a purpose and a plan behind it. And you are trusting it. You just don't understand why it keeps happening to you. Brokenness is the most valuable lesson any Christian can learn. Because when you are broken... And you realize it is, but by the grace of God, you're still breathing. 
It is but by the grace of God you still have your, your sanity. It is but by the grace of God that you still survive. It is but by the grace of God you still get to serve him. But by the grace of God that you get to continue on and carry in the things that God has called you to. That is when you learn your most valuable lesson. Because when you understand the fullness of God's grace, you will want to extend the grace of God to everybody you know and see. But it's not until you're broken. I love Jeremiah. Jeremiah is one of my favorite prophets. And he talks about this clay vessel. God is building up this clay vessel, but it becomes marred. And he tears it back down. You might say, why would God do that? Why would he tear it back down? Because here's the point. The point is it's marred. If you took that clay vessel and it's still wet, and you put it into the furnace and it's marred, and you heat it up and you cook it, Guess what? That vessel comes out with the cracks and the mars in it, and then it has to be thrown away completely. But while it is still wet, it's still moldable. It still can be reformed. And so he recognizes the mar before he puts it into the furnace, and he tears it back down so he can build it back up without the marring. You see, here's the thing. When God is done with you, he's done with you. Second Timothy talks about vessels that are used for honor and vessels that are used for dishonor. In other words, there are vessels that are put on the shelf and vessels that are in the master's hands. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be the vessel that's been put on a shelf because I'm not usable anymore. So if he needs to break me down and mold me and restart all over, I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. Because it says here that it is a broken and a contrite heart that he desires above all things. Now when you think about that, I think about Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. I think about the very first of the Beatitudes where he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. And I understand a lot of people like Luke's interpretation where it just says, Blessed are the poor. But Luke leaves off that in the spirit. And the reason why you need to understand why that's important is those that are blessed of poor in the spirit is simply this. They are those who recognize they have absolutely nothing to offer God. You ever thought about that? You have nothing to offer God. So the question is then, why does God love me? He loves me because he loves me. Not because I'm worthy. Not because I have any value. But because he is a God of love. He loves the most useless vessels. I'm telling you, it amazes me when I think about that. But he says... He loves those that have a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, thou will not despise. Lastly, let's look at righteousness of the soul. Verse 18. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering, with whole offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. A lot of people say, well, verses 18 and 19 don't really seem to go with the entire passage, but I would disagree with that. When he says, do thou good unto God pleasure unto Zion, build thou the walls of Jerusalem. The idea of building the walls, when you take it in the context of this passage, the idea is to build up the moral defenses for the nation. Build up moral defenses. We all need that in our lives. I think about the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. He doesn't say not only forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, but he says, but deliver us from evil. Why do we need to be delivered from evil? 
as Christians, we should just have a, a border of protection around us and never fall into sin, but that's not the way it is, is it? You see, here's the thing about Satan. Satan has had a long time to devise schemes and temptations and your ruin. Did you know that? He's, he's become an expert at it. Could you imagine if Satan really showed up and, get, and showed us exactly what sin looked like and what would be the consequences of those sins? Do you really think you would jump into it? No. But he's going to wrap it up in a nice little Christmas present. How many of you have ever used, how many of you have ever uh, played gag gifts? Anybody ever gave a gag gift? All right. Back in the 80s, there was a store called Spencer's. Anybody remember Spencer's? Some of y'all having vivid memories right now. We bought my grandmother a gift from Spencer's. Little box, wrapped up, beautiful. Oh, it's it probably the prettiest wrapping job my mom had ever done. And my grandmother is very meticulous in how she unwraps gifts, right? She's going to take care of the bow, make sure she doesn't tear it. She's going to take the wrapping paper and she's going to pull it up by the tape a piece at a time. Make sure she doesn't rip the wrapping paper because she's going to set it aside and she's going to use it next year along with the bow. She pulls the top of the box off and in there is the greatest gift of all time. Fake doggy do. <laughs> beautiful package. Inside, not such a beautiful gift. My grandmother just took the top, put it back on, Set it down, picked up the next gift. <laughs> we thought it was great as kids. We thought it was... If you think about the way Satan tempts us, that's exactly the way it is with sin. He wraps it up beautifully. It is packaged so pristine. And you say to yourself, I got to have it. I got to have it. it. It's worth it. I mean, look at the packaging. Look, look at what are promised to me. Look at what he is saying to me. It's kind of like when Eve was tempted with sin. You can have the mind of God. You can know right from wrong. It just seems so too good to be true. And so we got to unwrap it. And then all of a sudden we look inside and we go, Oof. that's not what I was promised. That's not what I saw. And then comes the guilt and the pain and the shame and the problems from that sin. And you know what's sad? Is he pulls it again and again and again on us. Yeah. Yeah. Build up the walls. Build up the moral clo Close yourself in. Cut yourself off from things that can tear you away. I, how many of you have ever seen the movie Fireproof? Great movie. My favorite scene is when Kirk Cameron takes the computer outside and he takes the baseball bat to it. Just, and then his neighbor comes out, right? Isn't that how it usually happens? You know, you're actually doing something good, but your neighbor thinks you're absolutely crazy. And he's just taking a baseball. And you know what? A lot of people look at it and say, well, you know, he, he could have just, he could have put some passwords on his computer and he could have. Let me just tell you something. If you've crossed the line once, you can find a way to cross the line again and again and again. And the best thing is just to get rid of it so you don't ever have to think about crossing the line. Build up those moral walls. Guard yourself. Hide yourself from those sins. Don't allow them into your lives. It will destroy you again and again and again. And that's what the prayer of repentance is about. Is God help me build up those walls so that I don't fall into that sin again. You see, here's the thing about David's sin. 
David was just up on the roof. He just happened to peer out and see a beautiful woman. Problem was, he didn't turn away from it. Problem was, is David was supposed to be on the battlefield, not on the roof. If David had been where he was supposed to have been, he'd have never fell into that trouble. We got to realize that wherever we go, we take the Holy Spirit with us. You might say, well, I'm strong enough. Let me tell you something. The proverb is very wise about this. The wise man sees the trap and goes the other way. The fool is a simpleton and just walks right on by and falls into it. My wife came down with me to New Orleans one time. It's where I went to seminary for my doctorate. While we were down there, we actually went down there for to go on a cruise. Anybody ever been on a cruise? Aren't they awesome? Well, we're going down and we're going to go get some beignets. Right? You know where I went. Going down to Cafe Du Monde and go get your beignets. So we walk all the way from the hotel there. As we're walking back, my wife and my kids are with me and we're walking back and my wife all of a sudden stops and she wants to see this street performer. He's all in gray and it's really cool and I'm talking and the next thing I know, I'm like, I don't hear anybody. Oh, oh, well, I'm leaving my family. So I walk on back and I look up at the street sign. I'm like, honey, let's go right now, right now, right now. And she's like, well, I want to see this guy. I'm like, no, baby, let's go. Bring the kids, let's go. She's like, but, but this guy's getting, baby, let's go now, right now. And she's looking at me like, you are crazy. I said, baby, I'll explain it to you in just a moment, but let's walk on. She said, what is wrong with you? I said, that's Bourbon Street. And she said, well, what's wrong? I said, I know you were looking at the street performer, but you probably didn't notice the lady behind the street performer starting to undress. And I said, but our son did. Let's go. You see, the simpleton would have said, it's no big deal. It's just a street. People are going to do whatever they want to do. No. The wise man says, let's go. Don't get around it. Don't stand near it. Don't have anything to do with it. Just go. I see, they didn't know any better, but I did. They didn't know any better. They didn't see what was going on. At least my wife didn't. You see, that's the thing. Satan will disguise it. He will disguise it, and it will look so good. And it will look so impressive, and you'll want it. The best thing you can do is seek God's face, turn from those evil ways, ask God to deliver you from those sins, and keep you far from it, and build those moral walls to not even tempt yourself. Because the moment you think you're strong enough is the moment you will 